Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. It's been said that the memoir genre satisfies two of our most human desires, to be known and to know others. A memoir is a narrative written from the perspective of the author about an important part of their life. An autobiography is also written from the author's perspective, but the narrative spans their entire life. Kirkus Reviews calls Bobby Kahn's In the Shadow of the Valley an Appalachian memoir from a woman who escaped a cycle of violence, substance abuse, and self-loathing in order to find her voice. Bobby Khan joins us today on the podcast. She um, has a degree from Berea College and uh, a master's from Eastern Kentucky University in uh, in English. And she's now written her first book, uh, In the Shadow of the Valley. And we're uh, glad to welcome her to the Think Humanities podcast. Bobby, welcome. Thank you so much. Your life is now this book. How does that feel? It feels really good to me to have this book out in the world. Um, When I first started working on it, I realized that my story could help other people. Um, And I also feel like it's a good story. So for those reasons, I really wanted to start sharing it with other people. Did you realize when you first uh, started writing it and it was as I understand, part of your uh, master's uh, thesis uh, when you were in school, did you realize at that time that it was being written to help other people, or was it more a cathartic uh, process that you were going through to help yourself? At that point, I really thought of it more as an exercise in storytelling. Um, I, I created it as basically a mixed genre form. The original thesis had um, basically a, a story that narrated one event of my life, and then it wove other events into it. Um, but there were also things like poems and a short story embedded within the prose. So I, I, pitched it to my um, chair as an invented genre or an invented form. And I thought that that was really appropriate given the material that I was working with. Um, But then after graduating from the program and beginning to work on it again to make it more publishable from a traditional perspective, that's when I realized that it had value beyond just being a good story. Where are the short stories and the poetry now? They are sitting in little folders on my computer waiting for um, a good opportunity for me to be able to share those with people. Well, for people who aren't familiar with um, uh, the publication, uh, it came out uh, uh, May 1st, as I understand it. So it's relatively new. Uh, There have been some advanced copies out uh, throughout the spring. Give Mm -hmm. us uh, your interpretation uh, of what uh, this uh, memoir is about? So I think there's a lot of different things going on within the memoir. 
Um, probably first and foremost, I grew up in Eastern Kentucky and I experienced a lot of um, probably the worst of our stereotypes that are uh, applied to Eastern Kentucky and its people. So that's one aspect of what my memoir tries to um, speak about and also to convey the complexity of growing up in Appalachia and how it, it shapes um, people's attitudes and understanding of self. Um, I think an, a topic that's in, intertwined with that is classism in America, which um, I think is something that is responsible for a lot of the stereotyping of Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky in particular, in my experience. Um, as a woman, I also you know, get to write about what it's like to grow up female in that particular environment. But then also, I think, you know, my experiences as a female are highly relatable for other females. And, you know, some of the abuse I experienced is certainly not gender specific. Um, I also think that my memoir, it, um, it seeks to talk about like, how we see ourselves and how we see others and how we continually construct narratives about ourselves and others. Um, and ultimately, the, the value and importance of claiming the power of the storyteller and claiming power and agency over our own narrative. If people have not read um, uh, the memoir, and hopefully will, what time period are we talking about? I, I was just reminded uh, yesterday by someone, um, and it didn't uh, happen to me, but the reference was uh, to never ask a woman how old she is, ask her what year <laughs> she was born, uh, or, or, and so I, I don't want to know your age, but we're talking about what time period that, that you grew up? Sure. Yeah. Well, I grew up in the eighties. So um, we're talking about Eastern Kentucky, you know, largely in the eighties and through the mid nineties. And then as the book progresses, um, like I'm in college in the late nineties, early two thousands, um, you know, so it's, it's really before the digital age um, took place. Uh, or, you know, I'm in that generation where it spans both. And the reason I wanted to establish that um, is that we aren't talking about maybe the, the Eastern Kentucky or the Appalachian of, um, of old that was written about uh, in, in many novels and, and many other uh, autobiographies and memoirs, uh, which were right. written uh, early in the, uh, in the last century or, or in the mid-century. So we're really, you grew up not in um, the, the old days. You, you, it, was, it was the modern world was developing and uh, things were going on in, in the world that uh, we're all aware of that uh, were occurring in the, um, 
we were post Vietnam and uh, we're in the mm-hmm. uh, heyday of the uh, of the bust and boom in many parts of the country, like Texas. Uh, uh, but did you find in growing up that, in some ways, uh, Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky uh, that that you knew had been there and had not changed over the generations? Well, I was always told or always heard as a kid growing up that Kentucky was 20 years behind the rest of the country. Um, And I've, I've had a couple of readers reach out and share that, that they found the, the timeline difficult to put their finger on because my experience, you know, in the eighties and nineties was behind what their experience was in some ways. Um, you know, for, for various reasons, technological advances and transportation networks in Eastern Kentucky and Appalachia are not as um, robust as they are in the rest of the country. You know, so development is often slower. Um, and then you also have a lot of preservation of history for the very same reason. Um, so, you know, I think that like my grandparents probably saw it as a different world um, because of, of the few technological advances that were available to them. Uh, but for me, I definitely do think that Appalachia still has a nice slower pace to it, you know, for better or for worse. Um, and that there, there are certain things that continue to persist in Appalachia that you don't find in other parts of the country. Um, Like I was out at my granny's house last year and I took a picture of a chicken in the yard and uh, I realized looking at it later that I have another picture of her yard that looks exactly the same, you know, the same shed. There's a chicken walking around pecking at the dirt. So, you know, it seemed like a really special thing that hasn't evolved. Your um, extraordinary detail uh, and your the memory of your growing up, um, I found stunning and and um, quite um, honest. And did you feel like when you were growing up, were you aware of? You knew that you were poor. What's the difference? Let me pause there and ask, what's the difference between poor and poverty? Well, for the sake of my memoir, I distinguish between those two things um, because I really wanted to explore the difference between not having a lot of money and maybe being poor on paper versus experiencing poverty as an emotional, psychological state, which is what I feel like I grew up in poverty as this state of being that really permeated my sense of self and who I was. When I look at my granny and papa who grew up right next to us, I'm sorry, I grew up right next to them. Um, You know, granny would go get government cheese and she stretched pennies further than I think anybody ever has before. Um, But At their home, you didn't have a sense of lack. There wasn't a sense of there 
there not being enough or, um, you know, things, things being wrong, that there was, there was something wrong or something chaotic. Their home always felt like a sanctuary and a place of peace. Um, and so now I look back and I, I've tried to sort out what's the difference between, you know, my parents and the home that we had and then my grandparents who may have worked with less money. It certainly seems quite possible. So I, at least for the sake of my book, I talk about poverty as being something that's wrapped up in you know, the psychological experience rather than just the physical. And in all uh, that I read, and there, there's quite a lot um, from reviews and um, blurbs uh, from other authors and other writers, and, and people have commented on uh, various forums you also, or at least the, some readers have made a distinction between some children or families existing and growing up in, in Appalachia in eastern Kentucky and, and being able to escape the, the poverty, if you will, uh, by going to school and, and, uh, uh, and then, then your distinction is that you're you're because of your uh, an overbearing and and violent uh, childhood uh, with your father, which we'll talk about in a moment. What was different from other children growing up in Appalachia? Is that a, is that a fair assessment that somebody has drawn in in some of the, the comments that have been made? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I do think that for a lot of people growing up in that region, you know, leaving has been a necessary part of creating a different world for themselves, a different kind of life, which I think is just a terrible, sad loss for Appalachia because it is such an incredible region and the culture has so much to offer. Um, And then abuse further complicates it um, because even, you know, having to leave for opportunities is not the same as having to leave in order to sever yourself from dysfunction, you know, and I think that that was an important thing for me to do in order to be able to forge a new identity. Your, um, your father and your upbringing in the house with him when he was there and uh, really permeates um, your entire life up, up, up to present day, I would imagine. Uh, tell us about him and tell us about your, your, your growing up, especially when you were a, a young child of, of uh, uh, under 10 years old and then uh, around that time before you, you left and, and found yourself uh, in, the, in the wider world. Well, he was um, a very unpredictable person in some ways. Um, he liked to take opiates uh, when I was starting when I was really young, as far as I know. Um, But I know that he abused other drugs and alcohol prior to me being born. Um, He, he spent a lot of time around my great grandfather and would talk about my great grandfather who passed away right before I was born. Um, And I, I 
wrestle with this question at some point in the book of, you know, was my great grandfather's influence on him part of what shaped him to have his attitudes about being a man and what it meant to, you know, have the kind of power that he had over me and my brother and my mother um, or what was it, you know, that, that shaped him to become like he was. Um, but he was basically a tyrant in the home, you know, like whatever he wanted was what happened. And depending on what kind of mood he was in, um, you know, we would learn to not speak or not have facial expressions and, you know, not to make noise or to respond in whatever way it seemed was necessary in order to placate him at any given moment. And he was a very violent person um, toward us and toward, you know, extended family members and the world at large, as far as what I can tell. And you really lived with that and are still working through a lot of that? Um, In a way, I guess, I think I will always have the, the childhood part of myself that wishes for a good father and wishes for a good outcome with my father. Um, but I do believe that, you know, as I've grown older and even in the process of trying to work through these questions in my memoirs so that I could really present a, an intelligent, cohesive story to the reader, I've come to understand that that fairy tale happy ending with him is not going to happen. Um, And, you know, that just has to be okay sometimes. And rather than, you know, thinking about what I've missed out on or what could have been and what my child's mind says should have been, then I can focus my efforts on giving a different life to my children and, you know, hopefully raising them so that they're able to make good decisions as far as their partners and having children and then how they go on to raise their children. Can you uh, tell us how you now describe, although it's much clearer and um, achingly um, honest, uh, in in the book, your your adolescent years uh, from let's say thirteen or so up until um, you were in college, uh, to tell you were twenty years old. How do you describe that period of your life? Uh, I would say pretty hellish would be the best <laughs> way to uh, <laughs> to get at be, that. Uh, that might be a mild description of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, going through puberty and adolescence was really difficult and frightening. Um, I was exposed to more predatory men at that point in my life. And so the, the confusion of adolescence in and of itself, coupled with, you know, continued physical violence and verbal abuse um, were certainly 
just the terribly unsettling, you know, like it was, I, I would say that was a very um, unfortunate foundation for my adult self to really begin forming. Um, I found escape when, you know, starting at about 15, um, my father had always given me drugs and alcohol. I mean, not like all the time. It wasn't something I was constantly doing as a child, but, um, you know, as I grew older, it was, there, there were very few barriers to drugs or alcohol. And then as a teenager, I really embraced taking more drugs myself and I had a boyfriend. Um, so I think though, one of the good things about my teen years was that I, I also embraced the hippie um, notion of life and, you know, I wanted to save the world. I wanted to recycle and I wanted to, I really did want to be a good human citizen. Um, I spent a lot of time out in the woods hiking and I loved nature by that point, which was also something that was established in my childhood. Um, so even though I was experiencing all this inner torment and I really wanted to escape it constantly, um, I also felt really connected to things that were beautiful in the world. And a lot of that originated in nature. Um, but then some of it also came from books, you know, and recognizing the beauty of the written word and of certain specific stories. So I was constantly going back and forth in this push-pull between, I think, pain and beauty. Um, so that at least gave me a sense of hope and a sense of um, a reason to persist and, you know, thinking that there's always something better down the road, um, even if it wasn't right in front of me. Was there ever a time, and I'm uh, talking about maybe one incident uh, when you were at Berea and you'd missed uh, class and your professor uh, asked you to read The Night Comes to the Cumberlands by Harry Caudle. And it seemed like to me in just reading uh, a few sentences, and I wish we had uh, time to, to read all of that passage, but um, it seemed like to me you had an opportunity that at that time to, to focus on a different way in the future for yourself, but yet you fell back into some problems and uh, the drugs and the lifestyle did not change at that time. Was was there ever a turning point in your life, uh, in, in your lifespan at that point where you thought, uh, I, I can be better than this? And I guess that's the self-loathing part that I read about, that that I can I can do better. I'm I'm smart. I, I I'm well read. I can I can achieve a lot, which you have done. Now you're a, a successful author and uh, with a master's degree. Uh, so you you overcame that. Was there ever a turning point that you can you can talk about that when you said uh, this is not going to be my life anymore? Well, let's see. I, I read that book in um, high school. Actually, it was a, a very gracious high school teacher. 
who exposed me to that. And I think I probably had that realization that I wanted better for myself at different times in my life, but I wasn't able to enact enough change at certain points um, to, to make like a full 180 kind of change. Mm -hmm. So I think it happened in stages, um, but certainly being in college and, you know, being in philosophy classes and having conversations with my professors, um, you know, that, that was really eye opening for me. And I really got to feel the, I got to feel what it meant to use my mind to its full capacity at that point. And I really loved it. Um, that wasn't enough to just fully change me, you know, and turn my life around. Um, by the time I graduated, though, I was a single mom and, you know, I loved my son um, dearly. So I made a commitment to myself at that point to give him a certain kind of life. And I realized, you know, that I could change my life again and continually be better. But in my early 30s, probably right at 30, was the day that I realized that all of the situations in my life to that point that I didn't like and all of the relationships that I didn't like had me as the common denominator. And that's when I said, oh, I I have to fix this. And I had just lost my granny. She had just passed away. Um, And so, you know, that's when I realized, like, it was completely up to me and that I didn't have anybody that I could just go and lean on to tell me everything's okay and you're great at just as you are. I only had the facts of my reality around me staring me in the face. So that's when I made the, you know, a really strong commitment to work on myself and to create the kind of life that I could be proud of and that my children would be proud of and happy about. Tell me your, um, your thoughts about Appalachia today. We talked about uh, the time period being in the 80s and 90s. Um, you have uh, pretty much stayed in the uh, eastern Kentucky, Moorhead, uh, Berea, uh, Richmond, Lexington uh, area. There, there are not too many people that uh, have the experience that you have to uh, the depth of, um, of understanding of Appalachia. Uh, we, we also, I, I think people always refer to J.D. Vance, and, and that's uh, controversial in itself. Uh, uh, Cassie Chambers' new book uh, on uh, her uh, roots and, and, and her education now. And so tell me where we are today in Appalachia. Is it any different from 1980, or is it, is it making progress uh, that, that people would recognize? I think that um, I think one of the good things that we can see today is that Appalachia is not just some flat experience. Um, you do have people like Cassie Chambers writing stories that are pretty different from mine, you know, and that's a great thing. Um, Appalachia is not just a 
it's not just filled with people who are down on their luck or who are addicted to the pills. Um, there's a lot of strength and there's a, a wonderful culture that Appalachia has shared with the world. Um, I think historically, and that's being recognized more and more as, you know, like how valuable it is. Um, I think that what, what's still yet to be fully understood is the value of the resiliency that people in Appalachia have and um, how the degradation of Appalachia, its environment and the people has been part of a narrative in our history that's unfolded in other regions in this country. Um, it just so happens that it's in a very beautiful landscape, I think. Um, but Appalachia has been subject to extractive economies and <laughs> for decades, um, actually centuries. So, you know, and, and there are plenty of people, very intelligent people who've written about that and who can point to the real world outcome of that kind of history. And I think it's important that we start piecing together how that fits in with what's happened in other parts of the country and then what the solutions really are. Um, but I, I think that, you know, a lot of the people are still suffering from the history as it has unfolded. And um, I don't think that those are problems that spring from a lack of character that's uh, unique to Appalachia. Um, so I think that really all the, the progress that, that needs to be made is going to be made through policy changes. And those policy changes, or I'm sorry, those those policies that are in place now were not enacted by everyday Appalachians. So um, I, I love the region and, and its people as complicated as they may be. They're basically like people everywhere else. So I think that, um, you know, when the, when the rest of the country and when our politicians catch up and listen to Appalachians, then that's when the rest of the progress will be made. Well, Bobby Kahn, um, I want to thank you once again for being on our Think Humanities uh, podcast. I have to say that it is one of the um, the most honest um, portrayals of, of one's life that uh, I can remember reading. Um, thank you. The, the depth of which you um, peel back uh, the layers of your life uh, were extraordinary. And I think if, if um, for no other reason than just to learn more about you and, and uh, what your life has been like uh, to the point that where you are now, uh, it's, it's worth a, a read. So uh, we wish you the best of luck with it. Um, I understand you're writing a novel now? Yes, um, I'm working on, it'll be a novel that follows a family through seven generations in Eastern Kentucky. I'm working to incorporate magical realism into it because I think that that genre and that writing style just fits our region so beautifully. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to diving into it.
Well, we'll look forward to uh, to reading that and, and uh, talking with you about that uh, when it's published. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.